Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Chronicles 28. 1 Chronicles 28. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. And uh, I think it'll be page 231. 231 in your uh, pew Bible there. 1 Chronicles 28. It was quite a... uh, Quite an encouragement to witness those baptisms, huh? Um, to see children and to see adults making that step uh, in their journey of faith. It's, uh, it's honoring to the Lord and it's encouraging to us. And again, I'll say to you, if you've never been baptized, it's never too late. Um, we've, we've baptized young and old, anyone who has trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And as you read the New Testament, the pattern is when you get saved... You get baptized. Usually it was right away back in that day. But nevertheless, if it's been years uh, and years since you came to faith in Christ, there's still time for you to make that uh, step in your spiritual journey. We'd encourage you to do that. Let me open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you take now this uh, time in your word and would you use it for your glory? Let your spirit fill us now and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is wide open and ready to appropriate this truth into our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're in the midst of a, of a series called uh, The Rest of Life Resurrected. The Rest of Life Resurrected. And in essence, what we're looking at is everyday, common things of life that, uh, that we want to look at through the eyes of Jesus and say, how can we do this, this common thing, and yet resurrect it in such a way that God would be honored? And so we've looked at things like, what does it mean to, to go to work, to have a vocation, and, and, and carry out that vocation as God would have us do it? What does it mean to be a parent? as God would have us parent? What does it mean to interact with technology and social media as God would have us do it? We do that every day. Uh, What does it mean uh, most recently to to rest, to actually sleep and rest, which encompasses anywhere from 25%, which is not good, all the way to about a third, which is much better, of your human life. You think about it, you sleep and rest for up to a third of your human life. And so it's important to say, hey, that's a normal, everyday part of life. What do we do with it? What does God's word say about it? And if you missed last week on rest, on sleep and rest, or if you were resting a little more during the service, uh, you can go back and listen online. I'd encourage you to do that. Today's message, we're going to be looking kind of a continuation, a little bit of what we did on sleep and rest. And that is today, we're going to be looking at our human body. How we live in this thing 24-7. How does God want us to look upon and take care of our human body? Part nine in the series, living in our body slash temple. Temple. First Chronicles chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. I want to go through a succession of passages here. We're going to go through them rather quickly. And I want you to catch for just a moment the background and the story of what was happening in ancient Israel. The year was about 970 B.C. 
and King David of Israel was about to pass on his throne to his son Solomon. And as he was about to pass on his throne to his son Solomon to lead all of the kingdom, he said to Solomon, Solomon, I want you to take the plans that I have made and that, that, that the Spirit has given to me, and I want you to build a temple for the Lord. We pick up the story in First Chronicles chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you, this is David speaking, Solomon, to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Verse 11, then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chamber, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of all the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for the dedicated things, also for the division of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the articles of service in the house of the Lord. David takes these plans and he says, here they are, son. These are the plans that God has inspired me to write down for his house, his temple. And David tells Solomon of the great and costly supplies that he has kept in waiting for the construction of the temple. Jump over to chapter 29, verse 2. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared, this is David speaking, I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Verse 3. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold, the silver for things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? David had stored away all kinds of gold and silver and precious metals and stones and all kinds of resources and materials. He had stored them away for the building of the house of God, for the building of the temple. An incredible, costly group of resources. And he asks in the end, who is willing to consecrate themselves this day to the Lord. In other words, he's, he's calling to his son Solomon and he's calling to the assembly saying, who's with me? Who's going to take these plans that I've given my son Solomon and go forward and build up the house of God? 
Well, the people respond to David in verse 6. Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the officers over the king's work, they offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God. They gave 5,000 talents and 7,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of silver, excuse me, 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord. An unbelievable response of the people saying, yes, we're with you, David. Yes, we're with you, Solomon. You've stored away for the temple, David. Here we bring also our gifts for the house of God, for the temple of God. In time, the construction of the temple of God would begin. And the greatness of this temple, Solomon's temple as it is known, the greatness of this temple would require an incredible workforce. Turn over just a couple pages to Second Chronicles chapter 2, the very next book. Second Chronicles chapter 2 and read of the great workforce that began to construct the temple in about 970 B.C. This is Second Chronicles chapter 2. Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself, Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to oversee them. An enormous, enormous workforce. 70,000 men to bear burdens, that is to carry heavy loads, 70,000. 80,000 men to quarry stone, to cut at stone in the mountains and extract it from the mountains that the foundation of the temple could be laid, 80,000 workers in the mountains. 3,600 overseers. I would have preferred that job, personally. I... uh, I'm not built for heavy loads, in case you haven't noticed. Yeah, I, 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 I just, I'd gravitate toward that overseer role. I don't know why. But the account here, friends, it's, it's an enormous amount of people. And by the way, 1 Kings 5, a couple books earlier, also references this story. And in 1 Kings 5, it mentions an additional 30,000 men that were sent to Lebanon to cut and transport timber for the framing of the temple. 70,000, 80,000, 30,000, 3,600 overseers, nearly 200,000 workers for one temple. The temple was a magnificent work of the people of Israel. It was inspired by the Spirit It was built with precision, with care, and with hearts that were wide open and full of worship to the Lord God of Israel. The temple mattered deeply to the people. Deeply. It mattered deeply to David. 
It mattered deeply to his son Solomon. It mattered deeply to some 200,000 people who worked on it and upon the millions of others in Israel who came to worship in it. The temple mattered deeply to the people and to the Lord. The Lord inspired these plans, according to King David. said, this is the house that I want you to build. Well, that was in 970 and probably constructed finally about 963 B.C. Fast forward about 400 years and change. About 440 years to be more precise. Fast forward now from the time of the temple to a different time in Israel. A time in which much had happened in the land. A time in which another nation had come into the land. Babylon. The Babylonians came into the land in uh, the early part of the 600s B.C. on into the late 500s B.C. And the Babylonians came in for war. They came in for war. They made war with Israel. They entered into the land. They took the Jews captive and sent them away to Babylon. And they burned down King Solomon's temple. They burned it to the ground. Ripped it stone from stone. All that work. Just a trash heap. Seventy years went by. Seventy years of slavery of the Jews in Babylon. Seventy years in exile. But then finally God brought them back. Just as he said he would, by the way, in the prophets. He brought them back from Babylon, back into the land of Israel, back to the holy city of Jerusalem. And when they came back, they saw their city, and it was in shambles. They saw their temple, and it was burned to the ground. And if you read the early chapters of the book of Ezra, write that down, Ezra, great book. The early chapters of the book of Ezra, you see and learn of the Jews' desire to rebuild their temple. They took such pride in it back in Solomon's day. And so again, the people that came back from exile, they they saw their temple and they said, we're going to rebuild. And the early parts of Ezra, you can read about that story, their initial desire and efforts to rebuild the house of God. But... For various reasons, their their focus became distracted. And instead of building the house of God, by the early 500s B.C., the Jews instead were more interested in building their own house. Instead of devoting resources and storing away resources for the temple, instead the the people were more interested in, in putting the costly timber and the special resources to work in their own homes and not the house of God. Needless to say, the Lord was not pleased by this. His temple mattered to him. God's temple mattered to the Lord. And he wanted his temple rebuilt. And so, in 520 B.C., the prophet Haggai, you can turn there if you wish. It's going to be a little bit hard to find. But the prophet Haggai witnessing, witnessing the misguided look, uh, the misguided focus of the people. Haggai looked upon the people. He saw them building their own houses and he thought to himself, this ought not be. 
the Lord's house should be built, not the people's house. And this is what Haggai said in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He said this, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses and for this temple to lie in ruins? Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build my temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. And it goes on to say that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. The middle of verse 12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord and they came, verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. They were convicted. They knew that back in Solomon's day, that that the people had rallied to build this temple. And so also the people in 520 BC, when they came back from Babylon, despite the fact that their, their gaze got distracted and they started building their own house, they came back. They heard the word of the Lord from Haggai and they said, okay, We'll refocus. We'll we'll rebuild God's temple. We will erect it again. Because God's temple matters to the Lord. He wanted it to matter to his people. King Solomon's temple, 963 B.C., Haggai rallying the people again, along with uh, Ezra and others, 520 B.C. on into the early 500s. Fast forward again, 500 plus years, past the time of Jesus. And hear what the Apostle Paul has to say about the temple of God. Jesus has come, by the way, before before we read Paul, Jesus has come He's lived and died and rose again. He's instituted a new covenant to those who believe in him. And Jesus has sent someone. He sent someone to us. And hear now what the Apostle Paul says of who it is who Jesus has sent and where it is that this person lives. Hear now from Paul who it is whom Jesus has sent, and where it is, this person lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The words of the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Also 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 on your outline. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And one more. Back in 1 Corinthians again, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are 
the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Solomon's temple. The temple, it was rebuilt after exile in Babylon, the second temple. Here's another temple. A third temple, though we don't often reference it as the third temple. A third temple that has now come into play with the new covenant of Jesus Christ, who lived, who died, who rose again and said, I'm going to send someone to you. I'm going to go ascend to heaven, but don't worry. I'm going to send someone to you. And when he comes, he's going to live somewhere. Who Jesus sent was the Holy Spirit of God. And where he lives is in our temple. Our body. Paul said it three times in Corinthians. Three times he says it. Your body is the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. On the back, uh, excuse me, on the bottom of your outline, page one, on your outline, our earthly body is the temple of God. Write that down. Our earthly body is the temple of God. Herein lies a a theology that we so often overlook. Our earthly body is the temple of God. That's premise one. Premise two, the Lord fervently cares for his temple. I think we established that, didn't we? The Lord fervently cares for his temple. We saw it in Solomon's day with David. It's saying these plans are inspired with Solomon and the people saying, yes, we're going to rally behind this. We've stored resources away. We're going to build this temple. 200,000 workers. God said, build me a house. He cared about his temple. And again, the second temple with Haggai and Ezra and many others, Zerubbabel, he said, I care about this house. I care less about your paneled houses, the Lord said. I want my house rebuilt, my temple, build it again. And then we come to the new covenant. We come to the time of Christ and the time of of Apostle Paul's teaching. And here we see another temple, a third temple, in which once again we see that God cares about the temple in which he resides. Premise one, our earthly body is the temple of God. Premise two, the Lord fervently cares for his temple. Therefore, conclusion, the Lord earnestly cares for our earthly body. The Lord earnestly cares for our earthly body. That might seem kind of elementary. But we in 21st century America, especially in America not so much in other places of the world, but especially in in, in the Western world, we have a view of the body that is unbelievably corrupt and misguided and unbiblical. We look upon our bodies and we say, whatever we want to do with it, eat whatever I want, 
put whatever I want in my body. Uh, use my body however I want to use it, so long as it feels good to me. That's the philosophy of today. Do whatever I want with this body. And even in Christianity today, there's a view of the body that, that, that often pervades the church that kind of undermines uh, the, the ministry uh, of, of, of the word of God that, that we, we get a twisted view of the body. We think to ourselves, all that matters is my soul. All that matters is my spirit. I've trusted in Jesus. Who cares about this body? It's going to die anyway. So you know what? I'm not going to take care of this body. I'm just going to know that my spirit is saved on the last day. Do some of us live that way? A proper theology of the temple in the Old Testament combined with the knowledge that in the New Testament, the new temple is this frame, your frame, that you sit in right now? A proper Old Testament theology of the temple combined with the knowledge that this frame is now the temple of God should radically transform the way we treat our physical body. Amen? You don't often hear teaching about this, though. The Lord earnestly cares for our earthly body. He cares about its existence. He cares about its condition. He cares about its holiness, about its worship, about its perpetual witness. And I want to run over some of these points here today. We're going to go rather quickly because we're a little bit late today. Forgive us for that. Hang with me. Quickly now. God cares about our body or our temple's existence. Write that, that down that word existence. He cares about our body or our temple's existence. I'll reference the Romans 8 passage. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. In the New Testament and in the Old, the body is going to be redeemed. It's going to be resurrected. It's going to be raised It's not going to lie in the ground forever. God cares. He puts a measure of value, a tremendous measure of value, upon this earthly body. He's going to redeem it. He's not going to redeem something that's not you. He's going to take that physical frame, and it's going to be risen up. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, this natural body, which is sown in weakness, is going to be raised and changed and made into a beautiful, new spiritual body but that there's going to be semblance between the two the scriptures bear witness i i think it's very much the case that there's going to be a resemblance between our earthly body and between our eternal resurrected body god cares about our physical frame we're going to recognize others in the kingdom of god it's not that we're going to look upon people and say i don't know who you are no there's going to be a a semblance a recognition of our current frame in the kingdom of God. He cares about our, our body's existence. He doesn't toss it aside and say all that matters is your spirit or your soul. Secondly, God cares about our body or our temple's condition. Write down that word condition. This is where I want to center most of our discussion. He cares about our body's condition. Food. Food. Here we go. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a little bit of a, of a, of a primer. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul was addressing a very popular philosophy of the day. A very popular philosophy among the Greeks in Asia Minor. You read the philosophy in verse 13. Food for the stomach, this is on your outline, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. The Greeks would say this phrase, they would, they would recite this phrase as an expression of the fact that, hey, whatever you want, just pile it in. Just push it down. Enjoy the pleasures of life. Eat whatever you want. Later on, in, uh, later on in the very next verse, he talks about sexual immorality at the end of verse 13, that, that they were using their bodies in sexually deviant ways, saying, ah, oh, the body doesn't matter. Do whatever you want with it. The stomach for food for the stomach, the stomach for food. There was a pervading philosophy among the Greeks in Asia Minor. Many pagans believed that it did not matter what you did to your body. Perfectly acceptable to treat it however you wished, so long as it felt good. Not unlike today. Not unlike today. Paul had something to say about this bankrupt idea of the physical body. He says in verse 12, he says, all things are lawful. All things are lawful for me. He's he's referring specifically there probably to food. He says, you can eat whatever you want, but not all things are helpful. All things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But I say that God will destroy both it and them, both the stomach and the foods that you so gluttonously partake of. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Get to that in just a moment. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul says in verse 12, do not let your body be mastered by anything on earth. That's a foolish way to live. Any food? Of course not. Any activity? Of course not. Why let your physical frame, which houses the spirit of God, God cares for this temple, why let your frame be mastered by some earthly thing? The stomach is not for food, nor food for the stomach. You don't just gorge yourself, drink up, embrace gluttony or drunkenness. Ben Witherington in his book, The Rest of Life, gives this quote. I've given you, it's a, it's a, it's a large one, but let's read it together. We hear little or no teaching in the church about the ethical issues involved in eating and drinking. Indeed, eating seems to have been declassified as an ethical issue among most modern Christians. We may eat to live, or in some cases live to eat, but either way, we don't view eating as an ethical issue. It's viewed as a matter of necessity, or pleasure, or comfort, but not as a moral issue. But a moment's reflection will show that there is something seriously wrong with this viewpoint. Isn't the Christian's body supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God takes up residence? Do we really think that God wants us to live in a landfill? Do we really think it is a good witness to others to abuse our body with too much food and the wrong sorts of foods as well? 
Do we really think it is a good stewardship of the gift of life to eat and drink in ways that seriously compromise or threaten our abilities to live that life to the glory of God? I don't think so. No, says Ben Witherington, and no, says the Apostle Paul, more importantly. This is not how the temple of God is to behave. And destruction comes upon the one who hastily cares for his or her temple or uses it for perverse and sinful behavior. We read the word destroy there. God will destroy, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, the end of verse 13, God will destroy both it and them. We, we see that and we see in there quite a statement of, of judgment that can be for both the, the Christian and the non-Christian. Um, in the context of, of a non-Christian who neglects and abuses their body, that destruction can, have, can relate to physical health problems as it can for the Christian, deterioration of the body, different kinds of judgments. It can lead to physical death when we neglect our body and do things hastily with it, eat the wrong kinds of, of foods or, or um, engage in activity that we ought not engage in. And for the non-Christian, that, that physical death can, of course, inevitably turn into eternal death. For the believer, don't suppose that, that the term destruction there is not for you. It is for you. The word apolumai in Greek can absolutely have to do with earthly judgments, earthly destruction. Not always going to hell, but rather experiencing earthly judgment. Again, poor health, untimely death, and the like. Various diseases, which we should be very clear, by the way, are not always a result of our own personal sin. Okay, if, you, if you're dealing with a, a, a disease of some kind or an Ill, a, a recurring illness of some kind, it is not always the case that that is a result of your personal sin. Sometimes our diseases and our illnesses are simply the result of living in a fallen world. Having said that, there is a case to be made, especially in the book of James, chapter 5, in which James says, hey, when someone's sick or perpetually ill, when their health is deteriorating over and over and over and over again, you would be wise to ask them, is there anything in your life that you need to rectify? In James chapter 5, he says, look, go, call for the elders, have them lay hands on you, and if you've committed sin, it will be forgiven you. Paul says the body is not for neglecting or immorality. The body is for the Lord, verse 13. And note this, the Lord for the body. We we always miss that. The end of verse 13, read that again. And the Lord for the body. We can insert the word is there to make it a more clearer translation than the New King James. And the Lord is for the body. That is to say the Lord is an advocate for the body. And why is he an advocate for our physical body? Because he lives there. I take care of my home. You know, I, 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 I make sure it's in, it's in good order. My wife and I, we work cooperatively to make sure the, the home is in good working order, that it's clean, that it's, that it's neat and, and presentable, and a place where people can come in and, and feel uh, uh, hospitality there. Why do we take care of our home? Because it's ours. We care about what's ours. God looks upon your mortal body, every single one of you, and he says, that's mine. I care about it. I don't want it abused. I don't want it neglected. 
I want it taken care of. The Lord is for the body. He's an advocate for it. He cares about its condition. He cares about its existence. You see a reference there to resurrection again in verse 14. He cares about its existence. In essence, Paul is saying, get your body in shape for the Lord. That's what he's saying. Get your body ready for the Lord because it's his. Don't neglect it. Don't abuse it. Don't fill it with foolish things. Proverbs would say, don't mix with wine-bibbers. Proverbs 23, 20, and 21. Don't mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. There is a theology here. It's, it's embedded. It's implicit. A theology of a good diet, of proper nutrition, of caring about our physical frame. And I might add one more thing. Not just about proper nutrition and good diet, but also, and this is so important, especially in in an American context, mindful eating. Mindful eating. You say, what's mindful eating? Eating that involves what the purpose of eating is for. You see, we tend to eat alone, or if we're with others, we tend to be distracted I go to dinner with people and they're on their smartphones, you know. Oh, hold on. Just, I do it too. I'm, I'm, I'm out with my wife and I'm checking my phone. Oh, put it down. That's right. Wait, stay focused here. We're either alone or we're distracted when we're eating. Or we, we, we get the food that can be quickly purchased. Fast food. Fast food, fast food, it's fast. Or can be prepared very quickly. We look for shortcuts when it comes to food. We eat too fast, and we eat as if eating is not that important. We just kind of, hey, let's, uh, let's hurry up, shove it in. Okay, let's go on to the more important things. Do you know that the Bible knows nothing of that kind of eating? Read all of Scripture. Find one instance in which Jesus and the disciples or Paul or any of the prophets or any of the patriarchs are walking along the road and just kind of stuffing their face and going on to the next task. Witherington writes again, Jesus expects eating and drinking. This is, this is wonderful. Jesus expects eating and drinking to be one of the things that will characterize life in the future kingdom. Why does he expect eating and drinking to characterize the kingdom? Because meals are one of the main ways that communion and koinonia, fellowship, happen and where intimate relationships are built. Eating was meant to be a social activity, not a private indulgence. It was meant to build community, not just meet our individual needs. Eating was always done in relationship with others. It was done slowly, all throughout Scripture. Slowly, looking up at those around you, reclining at the table as Jesus did, having conversation, which usually resulted in good spiritual conversation. And how often do we sit with our family at the dining room table each week? couple times a week, maybe three if we're lucky. 
That's not a New Testament theology of eating. That's an American theology of eating. The Bible would have you slow down, be mindful in your eating, recognize that this is, you know, it's, it's every day, it's regular, and it seems mundane, but you know what? We're resurrecting those things in this series. And I'm here to say to you very clearly that what you eat, the choices you make, and how and where you eat, and the time that you allow for eating is so much more important than you could ever recognize. Because it is in those moments that communion and fellowship and relationship, community, is really built. Amen? Quickly now, I'm, I'm going to just reference it, but in 1 Corinthians 9, there's a theology of bodily discipline. Paul says, I beat my body. He says, essentially, he says, I, 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 uh, I wrangle my body. I make sure it's, it's in the best shape it can be. And he goes on to talk about how, for, for the gospel's sake, that he might preach and not be disqualified. Paul says, my physical body, its fitness matters as I go out to preach the gospel. So there in 1 Corinthians 9, you have a theology implicit of bodily discipline or write this down, exercise. And there are other texts that I could have pointed to, but I'll just reference that one. If you don't think the Bible doesn't talk about sleep and rest, a good diet, or exercise, you're dead wrong. God cares about the body. He's for the body. Exercise matters. The last two points here on your outline. Thirdly, God desires that our body or our temple is holy and prepared for worship. God desires that our body or temple is holy and prepared for worship. You know, our body, it's, it's, it's the flesh. And God knows this body, because it's weak, it can give in to temptation and sin. And that's why he's instituted marriage, is one way to um, encourage uh, people to avoid sin in the body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're not going to turn there now, but read it on your own. You, you'll be amazed because there's an absolute... Uh, cohesion. There's an absolute one-to-one correspondence. Get this. A one-to-one correspondence between a person's worship and receiving what they need in the body. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul references marriage. He references the sexual union between a man and a woman. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that the wife does not have authority over her body but the husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And he says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I often hear um, um, ladies say, I wish my husband was more spiritual. I wish my husband was more of a spiritual leader. I wish my husband just took the reins of the spiritual leadership in our home. Ladies, this is food for thought. 1 Corinthians 7, you know what Paul would say to you? He would say, ladies, there is a one-to-one correspondence between your husband's spiritual growth in Christ and his body receiving what it needs in the marriage relationship. Paul says it indelibly clearly. There is a one-to-one correspondence between a person's ability to worship God and yet not be tempted away and distracted away by the things of this world, but yet have their body properly 
cared for in the marriage relationship so that we can be freed up for fasting and prayer. And then he says, and come back together again so that Satan does not tempt you. A one-to-one correspondence between taking care of the body and your spiritual life. God takes defilement of the body very seriously. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, he says in 1 Corinthians 3.17. For the temple is holy, which temple you are. Finally, God desires on your outline that our body or our temple be a perpetual witness to his glory. God desires that our body or our temple be a perpetual witness to his glory. And all three of those New Testament texts reference the fact that we carry in our body the death or the dying of Jesus Christ. We carry in our body the sufferings of Christ. Well, guess what, friends? If you're going to carry in your body the sufferings of Christ, if you're going to go through life and endure and persevere and, and receive persecution and hardship and difficulty, your body better be ready for it. Because if it's not ready for it, it'll crumble and fall. And so instead of being crushed, Paul says, simply be hard-pressed on every side. Instead of being broken, he says, stand up and be ready for what's coming in the body. We, we are to be a perpetual witness to the glory of God in and through our earthly body. The implications of neglecting our physical body, I can't tell you how great and, and how widespread those ramifications are. And I just want to close with this, you know, um, you think about God's will, right? And, and you, you, we're always asking the question, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my life? Well, when you're asking God that question, you're presupposing that you're ready for what he's about to tell you, right? You're presupposing, God, what do you want me to do with my life? That, that God now can, can come to you and say, well, I, I, I want you to do this. And that you'll be ready for it, whatever it is he asks of you. But guess what, friends? If your body is not ready to do what God would have you do, then you won't be able to complete the task that he has for you. That is to say, if God wants you to go to Haiti on a mission trip, but you through your body, and, and, and I'm not referring to those who have done all they could and yet still are experiencing disease or illness or, or some kind of chronic suffering. I'm talking about those who have neglected their body, eaten poorly, not exercised. They've, they've indulged and they've, they've, uh, they've brought upon themselves great ramifications and they look upon what God's asking them to do to go to Haiti and they realize, wait a minute, how can I go to a place we're in the 110 degree heat in the midst of vacation Bible school with 700, 800, 900, 1,000 children. My body may not be able to carry out the task that you're asking of me, God. You see, friends, our body has to be ready for what God is asking of us. And if you don't take care of it, his options are limited. Let me say that again. If you don't take care of your body, and I don't care where you are, I don't care if you're a child, a teenager, a young adult, or grown, start today. If you don't take care of your body and do what you're supposed to do as much as it depends upon you, God's options are limited with you. I don't want God's options to be limited with me. I want my frame, my temple, 
to work in cooperation with the Spirit of God. Amen? And you want your temple, a temple that God cares about deeply, you want your temple to be ready and equipped for every task that God may have you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you now for uh, a time to consider the body. It's a strange thing to think about, Lord. Uh, We confess that we often neglect our body. We go the fast route. We eat poorly, hastily. We don't exercise or take good care of the stresses of life. Instead, we indulge and, and we drink and we bring upon ourselves all sorts of awful things, God. And then we look up and we say, God, what do you want me to do? And yet now, Lord, because we haven't taken care of ourselves, your options are limited in us. Oh, Lord, we confess that our body is yours. Our body is your temple, Lord. Your spirit is in us. We will take care of it that you might do great and mighty and wondrous things through it. Lord, give us a theology of the body that will inspire us to be ready for everything your spirit wants to do in this temple. In Christ our Lord's name, amen. Thank you for being here today, and uh, thank you now as you walk out for keeping in mind that your body matters. The temple matters. It mattered in Solomon's day. It mattered in the days of Ezra and, and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And it matters today because your body is another temple, the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells. Take care of it. Take care of it. I especially want to encourage you to consider mindful eating. Sadly, as we leave today, we're going to eat cake. I didn't think that through very much as I prepared today's message. So if you wish to abstain and follow my instructions, I will, I will not condemn you whatsoever. But it is 47 years of Coast Bible Church. Give yourselves a hand, 47 years. So we are going to enjoy some good cake and then please eat a nutritious meal after that. God bless you. VBS is coming. Get ready. God bless you. Go in peace.